so that we can get going. Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for uh, your word, and thank you for your history and the context that you place us in. We pray, Lord, help us to learn from what's come before and from those those saints that paved the way good and bad for everything that we do today. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in. Come on in. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Welcome from Texas. Welcome from Texas. Okay, you get the points for you know being the farthest uh, to commute today. <laughs> All right, we've been going through uh, church history. We're in the age of crusades. We're just finishing off the uh, the 13th century. Well, actually, today we're not finishing it, but working working through the 13th century. Um, part of what is bogging us down is because we have to talk about each crusade because Randy loves the crusades. So I mean, it's, we're going to hopefully get to two today. So cross your fingers, pray, think happy thoughts. But we're in, uh, we're in the 13th century, and unfortunately, part of why the 13th century is, is taking a little while is there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the 13th century. And we've, we've talked about these a little bit, but just to give a little bit of background, uh, we, have, we started off with the Fourth Crusade, which went very, very badly. Fourth Crusade is not a banner part of Christianity, so technically I suppose we're hitting three Crusades because we're doing some, uh, some recap. Pope Innocent III had wanted to make his mark. He wanted to, to be a soldier for Christ and be remembered that way. So he called for all of Europe to go down to the Holy Land. Nobody wanted to do it except the Venetians, but they only wanted to do it so that they could raid a bunch of uh, uh, Byzantine ports along the way. And even then, they didn't even make it to the Holy Land because they were too busy going over to Constantinople to ransack Constantinople. The Fourth Crusade was to attack a bunch of Byzantine people who were Christians. So not a really good crusade as crusades go, but it did create a Latin Empire of the East. Instead of instead of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople uh, speaking Greek and things, nope, now it's a Latin Empire. And the Byzantines had moved over to the East and that wasn't going to last too much longer. Because we had the rise of people like Timujin or Genghis Khan, who also rose to power in the early 13th century, killed 40 million people taking over Asia, destroying almost every city. And again, almost all the cities that were in, especially Central Asia, were Eastern Christian. And so, again, between the Fourth Crusade and Genghis Khan, Eastern Christianity, specifically Eastern civilization, Greek civilization, just takes a huge hit. Which is why so much when we think of modern Christianity, we tend to think of it as being Rome-based as opposed to Constantinople-based. And even today, when you tend to think of the Eastern Orthodox Church, where does your mind tend to go? Yeah, it tends to go over here to the parts that didn't get conquered by the Mongols. The cities that somehow survived this. The cities that didn't survive, the Greek-speaking cities and things like that. You just don't tend to think of those as being as where the seat of Eastern Orthodoxy is. So he killed 11% of the world's population at the time. More than 1 in 10 people were killed by the Mongols under his tenure. Also in the early part of the 13th century, not helping things, you have the Albigensian Crusade, because Pope Innocent wanted to hit somebody, so he went to, to France and decided to do a crusade against the Cathars, or the Albigensians, who were um, kind of a neo-Gnostic sect. They had some very weird views on different things. But also the Waldensians, who we really like. Peter Waldo actually read the Bible and said, strikes me that having read this, I don't think we're actually doing this. Has anybody actually read this thing? Maybe transubstantiation doesn't work so good. Maybe we should be reading the Bible in the common tongue. 
Maybe Eve, maybe we should do penance only insofar as we're actually sorry. I don't think it has anything to do with God's forgiveness of us. Stuff like that. So, of course, he gets condemned as a heretic. In one form or another, over the next 50 years, thousands of people are slaughtered throughout France and Western Europe in general, but specifically slaughtered in France with no trial, with nothing. 20,000 people killed in one day as the Crusaders attacked a city in, in France. This is where we get the phrase, kill them all, let God sort them out. This is what the Pope told Simon de Montfort, who was leading the crusade, when he said, I, I don't know if I can tell the Cathars from the Catholics. I don't know if I can tell the, the, the Waldensians from the Catholics. What do I do? And the Pope said, kill everybody. God will sort it out later. So, wacky fun. Then we have the Fourth Lateran Council. Wacky fun there. Among the 69 can canons that were expressed there, one was an extremely emotive defense of, of, trans, uh, of transubstantiation. Yes, it really is the blood and body of Jesus Christ. You are devouring Christ, and you must continue to devour Christ. Otherwise, you can't retain your salvation. Not a particularly banner day for that. Also, the requirement that all Muslims and Jews who are living in Christian territories have to have some symbol on their clothing to show that they're pagans. So that everybody at a glance can see from a distance that these are not Christians. The Nazis pulled a page from the Christians. When we tend to look at the Nazis, you go, oh, you made them wear a star, David. Oh, you're just horrible. They learned this from the Christian church. And the absolute insistence on a fifth crusade. We absolutely have to have another crusade. Innocent was big on the crusades. We've got to have a crusade. So that is where we're coming today, is that he's saying, we have to have a fifth crusade, and it's got to be under the direct supervision of the Pope. Because the Fourth Crusade went very badly when the, when the Sicilians were in charge of it. We're changing this. Or Venetians, I'm sorry. Venetians were in charge of this. We're changing this. So, here we go. Um, oh, yes, yes, what? Um, I might have missed this. But, um, oh, innocent. How did he choose the name innocent? It sounded good. I mean, there were, there were oh. two other innocents before them. Every pope that's coming up is trying to kind of make a nod to the popes before them. So we're, you very seldom get a pope bob. Anymore. I mean, it's, it's Pope. I, I was Bob, but now I'm Gregory the Ninth. Now I'm this. I'm trying to point back to earlier popes. I have no idea what his rationale was specifically for innocent. I don't know if he was specifically trying to point back to the things about the other two innocents, or whether he was trying to express that he had an innocent heart, or or what. Okay. It is an ironic name for somebody That's killing right. this many people. Yeah. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. The last thing we talked about last time was the Magna Carta. So. King John, weak enough that he was forced by his own nobles to sign the Magna Carta, which was crucial not only for history, but for church history, because the nobles, uh, as soon as he did this, uh, as soon as he was forced to do this, he appealed to Pope Innocent, who annulled the document, and excommunicated everybody, all the nobles that had forced him to sign it. And the nobles said, I don't think we are excommunicated, and I don't think you can annul this document. So not only is it kind of big on a political, socio-political thing, because you're telling the king that he's still under the law, but it's also big from a church history thing because you have a bunch of nobles saying, I don't feel excommunicated. That's kind of huge. So, all right. We start today with the Fifth Crusade. Um, again, Pope Innocent, very excited, gets it started, and then dies. So he never gets to see the Fifth Crusade, but he knew it was on the way, but it had to be taken over by Pope Honorius III, who's his successor. So Pope Honorius is pushing this forward and saying, we're going to have the crusade. And he was a lot more friendly toward the various orders. If you remember, Innocent was saying, that's it. No more monastic orders, no more anything. 
Diversity is a bad thing. Innocent had said, I, 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 the more different people that have the more different perspectives, the worse. Worship is all about uniformity. The whole nature of worship is that everybody thinks and does everything exactly the same. As we talked about last week, you know, well, uniformity is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the more often left field you get, the, the, the more uncomfortable this is. But worship is about placing God first, ascribing worth to God. That's the nature of worship. The moment you say, as Pope, I say, I don't care if you're actually ascribing worth to God. You're not doing it my way, therefore it is not worship. You're starting to get a little wonky. Wobble off. Now, I respect not wanting heresy, but the idea of saying diversity is bad. Honorius is a little bit more open to that. And he says, yes, one of the first things I'm going to do is allow the Dominicans to be in order. Uh, Dominic, I think you've got a good point. If you remember Dominic, uh, he wanted to pull the the emphasis on traveling preaching from the Franciscans and the emphasis on education from, say, the, the Augustans and, and, uh, and the Benedictines. And he said, what we really should have is wandering preachers who actually know the Bible, who are actually trained. How about we do that? Why don't we take good theology to the people? And Honoria said that makes good sense. And so you have Dominic going out and taking his people to the people. In fact, Honorius even called upon the specific military orders to lead the crusade. He's like, if this is under the Pope's auspices, we want the military monastic orders to lead it. Remember any of the military monastic orders? The Templars, the Hospitallers, right? There was one other big group that we talked about a little bit. It just started about 30 years before. The Knights Templar, or the, or the Knights Teutonic, the Teutonic Knights, the German Knights, because these guys specifically originally had come out of France, and they needed people that could actually speak German for the German troops. So you've got all these different monastic orders, and they are monastic orders, but they're extremely intensely militant monastic orders. To them, instead of just doing prayers and vespers, they also do sword drills and things like that out in, out, out in the yards. But they considered themselves holy orders. These are the guys that are going to be leading the crusade this time. In fact, the only person he didn't invite was the emperor, Emperor Friedrich II, because the emperor and the pope are fighting. Because the emperor and the pope are always fighting. Have you noticed that the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the pope are always fighting? They're always at odds with each other? Still feuding. This, this emperor and this pope feuding all over the place. In fact, um, Honorius, when he was a cardinal, had led some of the feud against the emperor during Innocent's term. So now that he's the pope, he's like, oh, I'm all over this. You're not coming to the crusade. Friedrich even got all his troops together. It's like, I want to go to the crusade. no. No crusade for you. <laughs> so you had to stay home. Um, there were also very few French knights this time around. Think about what I've already said today, just in terms of, uh, of that quick overview. Why do you think there's not a lot of French knights this time around? Because they've been killing their own people. Yeah, they're all in the Albigensian crusade. They're out there killing Cathars and killing Waldensians and a bunch of Catholics. They're busy doing their own crusade, right? So we've got a crusade going on in France, and we're going to go to a crusade going on over here. Luckily, King of Hungary, King Andrew, or Andras II, uh, had a huge force. He brought 20,000 knights. That's a lot of knights. I mean, the last time we brought a lot of knights on crusade, they had like 12,000 knights. That was a lot of knights. This is almost twice a many. So King Andrew, King Andras, brings them. The Venetian Navy convoys them to Acre. 
Phoenicians are not in charge, but we're going to use their navy. So they go to Acre, which is in the north part of, of uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem, which is that little orange. It used to be a lot bigger, if you remember. The kingdom of Jerusalem used to be a lot bigger, and it used to incorporate Jerusalem, which it no longer does. Kingdom, so the kingdom of Jerusalem's capital is not Jerusalem, it's Acre. They didn't change the name after losing Jerusalem. They just, you know, they could have changed it. For, remember, for the longest time, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't in Rome. It was in Ravenna, right? right. So, where's Urbana? Where's the Urbana Conference now? St. Louis. St. Louis, right? Yeah. It's not in Urbana anymore. <laughs> it's still called Urbana, though, right? Yeah. But I had fun telling everybody I was going to Urbana in St. Louis. Okay, now you can appreciate it. Uh, where's Rome? Ravenna. Where's the capital of the Kingdom of Jerusalem? Acre. Where's Urbana Conference? St. Louis. Same thing. So then they marched on Jerusalem. But the Muslims decided just to demolish the city walls, and they left. They're like, we remember what happened in the First Crusade. We remember that you ate us in the First Crusade. We don't want any of that. No more laying siege to Jerusalem. It's just not happening. It's yours. Knock yourself out. Take it. Take it. That's fine. Not even spilling one drop of blood. But holding it's going to be hard. Because you have no city walls, right? So you actually have to sit there in the city. You have to build some new walls and things. You can take it all you want. Good luck holding it. We couldn't hold it. Are you going to be able to hold it with your guys? You're going to station them there forever? So, take Jerusalem. And so Andras says, I'm leaving. I'm sick as a dog. I'm going to go back home. Um, and there's a whole bunch of new German troops that eventually come in. Not technically from Friedrich because he's not allowed to bring his imperial troops, but there's still some German knights that come down as well. And the crusaders march down to Egypt. They're like, aha, we've got Jerusalem now, we're going to go to Egypt, this is great, and we're going to go to Damietta. There's a new sultan there, the nephew of Saladin, and we're, he's brand new, he's young, we're going to be able to take this. We're on a roll. Why didn't they just go get the city of Jerusalem? Well, they, they did. They, go, they went down, they occupied Jerusalem, and then they're like, okay, we're going to leave a garrison here, and then so we're going to go on. they just get anchored. They actually went to the yeah. actual city in Jerusalem. They got Jerusalem. They took it, and now we're going to go, because that's that. They took Jerusalem, now we're going to go to Damietta. We're on a roll. We're on a roll. You go, okay, you really have to stop and think. Do you want to just keep conquering, or do you want to hold what you've got? But they're crusaders. They're not, they're not occupiers. These guys came down to conquer stuff for Jesus, right? Not to hold stuff for Jesus. To conquer stuff for Jesus. I'm a knight. I have a sharp, sharp pointy sword. I don't want to just sit here scaring people with my sharp pointy sword. I want to take stuff with my sharp... And I didn't get to take Jerusalem. I just got to walk into it. I take something. I need some so coverage. the walls wasn't the walls of Acre. It was actually the walls, the walls of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah, they had torn down the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm sorry. Okay, so they laid siege to it for over a year. Because, it, you know, you've got to take something. And people were dying of starvation. People were dying of disease. Far more than any battles. People were just getting sick and dying. People were starving and dying. It was horrible. In fact, it was so horrible, funky little teaching moment, that news of how horrible it was went back to Europe. Everybody in Europe heard how bad the siege of Damiano was going. So, Francis of Assisi, if you remember from St. Francis, where we talked about him last time, traveled down to Egypt, crossed the enemy lines into Damietta to meet with the Sultan to try to convert him to Christianity so that they, would, they could lift the siege. Which I think is really classy. I think it's really cool. It didn't do a darn thing. They, they, they just they sat there and went, no. 
but you're a nice man, you can go back across the, 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 the siege lines now. But I give him a lot of points for trying. You know, these, he was genuinely trying to make things better. It didn't do anything. But, again, bad stuff going on in history at the moment. Then you get, like, white hats like Dominic and Francis, and you just go, thank you. Thank you for trying to be good guys. Thank you for genuinely trying to be good guys in the midst of a lot of people not trying so hard. So, anyway. Even with all that, Damien had finally fell in November to the, to the Crusaders, um, even though Francis didn't accomplish anything. Nonetheless, fell to the Crusaders, and that's a good thing. So they said, now let's go on the march to Cairo. We'll take their capital. Stop and think. Stop and think. It's November. You hold, you hold all this. You've doubled the size of your kingdom, and you've actually held Jerusalem. You may want to winter somewhere. You may just want to chill. Do you understand what happens to the Nile? Do you understand anything about the Middle East? Surely, surely, no Westerner is just going to tromp into the Middle East and say, with force of arms, we'll just make it better. We'll just fix it. We don't do that, right? We understand that there are politics and climate changes and things. We learn nothing in, in the last 800 years. But anyway, we're going to go to Cairo. We're going to take Cairo. It's just, we're just gonna, I don't know exactly what the plan was. I don't know if they're just going to keep going through and snaking through Egypt so that there's this orange line through all of this. This is, this is not a good plan. So, strangely, the Nile floods because the Nile floods. I don't know if you were aware of that. Uh, and then they, 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 they got cut off from their supply lines because their supply lines are getting fairly thin here. And um, El Camille actually does this, I'm not going to go into it, but this is really brilliant night raid and attacks them at night and devastates them. And so they finally realize they have to they have to surrender. They have to back up and they have to surrender. It didn't help that they kept waiting for Friedrich's troops. They're like, this will work. And this, this part of the plan I do know. They were thinking, we're just going to keep going this way, and Friedrich's troops are going to come in and fill in everything we've done. But Friedrich couldn't send his troops because the Pope's still mad at him. Bear in mind, the Fifth Crusade is under the direct supervision of the Pope. And if the Pope's mad at you, then you don't get to send your troops. You go, but, but we need the troops. We really need the troops, and you're in charge of this. No, no troops from Friedrich. Just do it on your own. So they lose everything that they've gained. Everything is gone. They lost Damiana, they lost Jerusalem, they lost everything. And in response, the Ayyubids, the, 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 the Muslim dynasty there, said, you get to go home, and there will be an eight-year ceasefire. We won't kill anybody, you won't kill anybody, for at least eight years. All right? Yes? How do you think this would have been changed with the mass media we have going on? In what way? Well, like, like even now with, with Putin, we just keep sending people over there, reports come back, but nobody's actually fighting each other. We're back then, I would see fighting starts first and then people start to go, or they send letters or ships. And it's just a much slower process because news travels slower. So now that news travels faster, but this has been, like, with less people have died, you think? Or what? Like, I don't know if less people would... I, I think we're still seeing a lot of dead people nowadays with, with things. <laughs> but certainly things moved at a slower pace. And I think we saw it actually even specifically beginning with Vietnam you find that um, you can get away with doing a lot more horrific things if people aren't taking pictures. Yeah. If people, if you write back and say, boy, it was really bad, we even had to eat people there, and you go, wow, that was hard. 
if there was video of that, you go, well, that's the last crusade for you guys. You know, they're just not letting you do that. Um, we get a lot more visually sensitive, I think, now. So there would probably be a lot more, well, which itself creates a lot more political correctness. If, if every word that you say is going to be posted on Facebook and, and you can Google it, if every image is easily Googled, if every video is going to be on YouTube, you actually have to stop and think about everything that you're saying and doing more so. And so there's a lot, there's a lot more politicking now going on with war. So do you think like the Crusades could have been shorter with all these mass killings and people that actually knew what was going on back then? Or except the lay people? But I don't, I mean, lay people aren't that educated anyway, so... Except, and I don't want to get into a whole thing about mass media theory, Sorry. but I, no, I'll say one thing, though. The unfortunate truth is that with increase of information comes an increase in apathy. Um, by definition, pardon me, the more information you get, the less you can do with it. Um, 300 years ago, newspaper articles, major newspaper articles were, uh, Aunt Betsy is coming to town to visit Flora Johnson. You know Aunt Betsy, she's the one that makes a really, really good pie. And so you go, oh, I want to go visit Flora, because Aunt Betsy's the one that makes a really, really good pie. You can actually do something about it. Now we look at it and go, well, that's just a fluff piece. That's nothing. I mean, that doesn't matter. What matters is what's going on in Bolivia right now. That's important. People are dying. And you go, really? Are you planning to do anything about that? Are you going to fly to Bolivia to save lives? Well, no. So you're going to focus on all the news that you will do absolutely nothing with. The more information you have, the more information you have about things that you have no intention of doing anything with, and the more information you have to sift through and decide what you're planning not to do anything about. When, uh, when I was in college and the information I got was from phone calls and letters, those were important. Now that I get 15, 16 emails a day, I delete a lot of them without even opening them. I never got a letter in college that I didn't open. So by definition, with the increase in information, there's an increase in apathy, an increase in lack of involvement. We might have some moral outrage. You might have had some German peasant standing there going, we shouldn't be doing it that way. And then that would be about this thing. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And yet, at the same time, what, what, it re what it requires is that governments tend to give the appearance of taking that seriously. We'll still kill as many people. And nobody's voted in. Yeah. There was no question. Well, although, even, and then I'll finish with this. Yeah, although we're seeing even in England, if you have a weak enough king, people can go, well, you're just dumb. You know, even if you weren't voted in, even if you were, you're the king. Yep. Nobody's done that for a little bit. We haven't had a pope poisoning for a little bit. It'll come up here soon. All right. They also promised to return the true cross, which is cool. Um, the Muslims did. You can go home, we'll have an eight-year peace, and we will return the true cross, the cross that Jesus was actually crucified. They didn't have it. They didn't have the true cross. But it was a great treaty point. You know, that way it was, I mean, you can go home with your head up high if you are a German knight and you're carrying the true cross back with you. Never mind the fact that it was made ten minutes ago by a, by a Muslim carpenter, but yeah. So this crusade, horrible, horrible debacle. Everybody in Europe blames the Pope, especially the Emperor. The Emperor's like, well, this would have worked if the Pope hadn't tied my hands. If the Pope hadn't been so inept, not a good thing. Not good for the Pope. There's some good things going on, though. Bad stuff, right? But there's some good stuff. For instance, if you remember from Sarah's talk the other week, Thomas Aquinas is born. Thomas Aquinas, very bright guy, genuine guy, wants to help the church. 
solid guy. We'll come back to him in 50 years. Because his birth doesn't matter, but some of the stuff that he, that he wrote about later, and that works better in the context of that. But we've got to get back to some bad things. Because more bad things... It's the beginning of the 13th century, and it's all bad. It's so bad. Except the Franciscans and the, and the Dominicans. They're trying to do some good. Most of the things are, are not so good. The other Teutonic Knights. It's, two, it's 1227. You can't invade anybody. What are you going to invade? <laughs> Europe. You're German? Let's invade Europe. I'm German too, so I can make those comments. As well, I, I, I have to wrap my head around the fact that my people said, we're going to take over Europe, and then we fail the First World War, and then the Second World War, we do it much better, and still, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's being German. Anyway, we're extremely good at doing 90% of a war. Uh, 1225, to ease tensions, Honorius supports Friedrich's bid to become king of Jerusalem. He's like, all right, you're bad-mouthing me to Europe. I look bad already. Tell you what, would you like to be king of Jerusalem? And, and he said, yes, I want to be king of Jerusalem. I so want to be king of Jerusalem. And so I'm going to build up my forces. I'm going to go down. I'm going to declare myself king of Jerusalem. I may not actually get the city, but the kingdom of Jerusalem still exists. I'm going to be king of it. And so he's like, I'm going to give the Teutonic Knights land. I'm going to give them money. I want to build them up because why the Teutonic Knights? Why not the why not the uh, the Templars or the Hospitallers? Yeah, and Friedrich is German, right? You might actually hear him as Emperor Frederick, but at this stage of the game, especially, I'm trying to get point. He's, he's German. He's the German Emperor of, of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Holy Roman Empire is German, right? So Emperor Friedrich says, "I'm going to give my Teutonic Knights." Landed Acre. They're going to get some taxes. They're going to build up their forces. This is going to be great. But not only in Acre, but also in Northern Europe. I want to give them land so that they have a European base. Now, look at where I'm pointing. Anything strike you? Pardon me? Yeah, it's not yellow, is it? It's not actually under his territory. This is disputed territory. This is not. So they actually have to take it, which, which is always good. It's like if I said, Randy, I owe you money, right? And so I owe you 20 bucks. You can get that from Nikki. There you go. I paid my debt. Randy gets his 20 bucks. And he's taller than Nikki. So I mean, it's, there you go. That's just the way it works. So, yeah, your territory is not technically within my territory. So you're going to have to go get it. But this works because King Conrad of Poland over here asked for their help against the Baltic Prussians. The Prussians are a bunch of pagans. And he said, these guys are attacking me from the north. Could I get some help? He contacted Friedrich and said, could I get some help? He's kind of think, Kuwait, you know, we're getting attacked. Could you send somebody? And he's like, oh, oh, could I send somebody? I was kind of wanting territory for them. Anyway, Prussia sounds good. Because Prussia isn't even remotely Germanic. Again, not yet. When you think of Prussia, you think of Prussians, you think Germans. No, 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 they're not Germans yet. They don't even have a remotely German language. They're a bunch of non-German Slavic pagans, right? That's what you think of when you think of Prussia, right? Not so much. So he says, I'm going to send them up there. Who cares who's actually in charge of it? We're going to save Prussia from the Prussians. So over the next 50 years again, this section is taken over by the Teutonic Knight. They slaughtered almost the entire race of Prussians, which is why when you think of Prussian as a language, you think German, because that's all that's left now. Both sides made it a point to torture and maim and, and slaughter civilians, prisoners on both sides. So as as much as it, it, 
sometimes when you study history, they'll say, that, oh, the Teutonic Knights were vile. Why, they killed almost all the Prussians. They tortured them, tortured children. You know, actually, technically, the Prussians started it. They made it a point of, uh, when, early on in that particular crusade, when the Prussians captured a bunch of Teutonic Knights, they boiled them in their armor to make a point. And so you go, all right, that set a precedent that lasted for decades. So the worst thing you could think of was being captured in this particular crusade, the Northern Crusades. That was, it's like, it's like, you know, when you watch a Western, it's like, oh, the Apaches, you know, well, save the last bullet for yourself, because you don't want the Apaches to get you. Northern Europe, that's, that's the way it was. I mean, no, so, so the fact that it, it was really going to come down to genocide one way or the other. And, of course, the Teutonic Knights are, like, the toughest knights in Europe at this time, the toughest knights in the world at this time. And they've got the backing of the Holy Roman Empire. If there's going to be a genocide, they're the ones that are going to end up doing it. But this is not going to end with any treaties. This is not going to end well. So then they moved on to, uh, to Livonia and Lithuania and Poland. Because, again, conquerors tend not to go, well, I've done my conquering, and I guess I'm done. Once you got a taste for it and you're good at it, you keep doing it. And I think it's ironic that this was originally, supposedly, this had begun to defend Poland from invasion, right? And then we just took Poland because it, well, our foot slipped. You know, oh, and then we took Poland accidentally. But the Holy Roman Empire just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, on the plus side, funky little teaching moment, this meant the world's toughest knights happened to be trying to take over Poland at the same time that the Mongols tried to take over Poland. So that's going to be interesting in, in 1241 when the, when, the, when the toughest things going in Asia hit the toughest things going in Europe. So that'll be fun. Yeah, Poland has been a bit of a battleground over the years. I don't know if you've noticed that. So everybody tends to, why does everybody t fight over poor Poland over here? Okay. Access to the Baltic, it's, it's between Russia and Europe, but why does that matter? I mean, beyond just the, the geographical physicalities of it, what's, what's it a buffer between? Sociologically. Okay. Uh, like, everything east of here is, is all Slavic. It's, a, it's an entirely different kind of mentality. Even though you've got Germans and, and Span Spaniards and French and Italians, haven't we seen that they're all kind of... I mean, we had... Spain spoke German for an extended period of time, right? I mean, it's all one big European thing. There are some very unique elements of things. Guys up here are very different from guys down here. Although, technically, right now, southern Italy is still under the control of Normans, right? Who were Vikings, speaking German, because they were from France. <laughs> You see, my point is that yeah, everything over here is one melange of Europe-ness. Everything over here, or actually, I should just do it this way. Everything here is a bunch of Slavs. They have a specific cultural group. And then you got Poland right in between the two of them, which is fertile ground. It's access to the Baltic. It's smack dab in the middle of things. Yeah, so Poland and Hungary keep being battlegrounds not only because they're centrally located, but because they're between two, th they're the chafing points between two completely different cultural groups. Oh, all right. So 1228, because that's 1241. I'm not, I'm not there yet. 1228. Emperor Friedrich launches a sixth crusade, 
and I told you we'd get to two crusades today, and we're totally doing it, so in your face for saying we weren't going to be able to do it. I, I forgot the previous date. Did they wait eight years? Yeah, the, the previous date was, um, was uh, it would have been 1218, so this is now 1226 would have been when they could do another crusade. 1227, so we waited until 1227, Emperor Friedrich leaves to invade the Holy Land. It's like, I promised uh, Honorius that I'm going to go invade as soon as I can. So as soon as 1226 comes, I get my armies together, 1227, we march to the Holy Land. Fortunately, he gets really, really sick. Horrible epidemic, he has to turn back. I can't go to the Holy Land, got to turn around. Even the head of the Teutonic Knights says we got to turn around. When these guys say, oh, okay, retreat, you've you got to do that. But he's like, yeah, half your forces are all sick. You've got to go back home. Fine. But the new pope, Gregory the Ninth, still uses that as an excuse to excommunicate the emperor because the pope and the emperor are butting heads. And he says, you promised you would invade the Holy Land, and you turned back. I got all my troops together. I paid the, the, the I paid, they came from Brindisi this time. I, I, I paid everybody in Brindisi to, to convoy us. Good faith. I mean, how do you, how can you define good faith better than that? I did, I did, in good faith, I went to invade the Holy Land. No, nope, excommunication, because you're a rotten human being. Because you lied to the Pope. Is there anything worse than you could possibly do than to lie to the Pope? No. No. Immediate hell. Once you talk to, once you lie to the Pope, oh, it's like lying to Jesus. So 1228. Okay. 1228. Friedrich turns around and goes, I'm going on my own crusade. Just forget the Pope. I don't need the Pope. I'm going to do my own thing. You tell me I'm, I'm, I don't feel excommunicated, and I'm going to go save the Holy Land. So on you. This is two crusades you've told me I couldn't go on. I'm doing my own crusade. That's it. So he took not only his own knights, but also the Knights Hospitaller and the Templar. And the Teutonic Knights. And all of his imperial forces. Everybody, he put, he put like buckets on peasants' heads and said, act like a knight. You know, everybody he could possibly get, he got to go with him there. Because his whole point was, I want to make El Camille go, I give up. We're going to play chicken. I'm going to take everybody I can possibly take, and what I'm trying to do is make him back out, because I know. Because I'm actually not an idiot. Most of the people that have been leading the last crusades have been tactically stupid. I'm not. I know we can't take it by force and hold it. I know we can't. It's not going to work. Unless I choose to garrison 10,000 troops, you know, split half my army and throw them all down there and say stay there forever, we're not going to hold it. I need them to want to give it to me. So I'm going to take this huge mass of guys, we're going to scare them, this will work. What do you think? You think so? It works! Yes! Luckily, El Camille's forces are tied up fighting in Syria. There's, there's a, uh, 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 basically a, 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 a rebellion going on in Syria, let's just say that way. And so he said, fine, take Jerusalem, knock yourself out. He gives them a little finger, a little corridor onto the sea. He's like, you get Jerusalem and Nazareth. Knock yourself out. If I give you Jerusalem and Nazareth, those are really the only two cities that you Christians care about. So, take them. Go. Fine. Now, a drop of blood spill. And takes Jerusalem just by going down there. Why is that important? I mean, beyond the fact that it's kind of nice that people didn't die. Why else is that important? You got to show up the Pope. Yeah. You got to show up the Pope. Yeah. Hey, Pope, you got like two crusades stuck at both of them. Told me I couldn't go. Both times we lost. 
I run the crusade, we win. It's like Darth Vader. Put Darth Vader in charge. For, it didn't kill anybody. You have the Darth Vader reference? First movie, Darth Vader's in charge? No, no, no. Emperor Tarkin's in charge. Who loses? The Empire. Third movie, who's in charge? Emperor. Who loses? The Empire. Second movie, who's in charge? Darth Vader. Who loses? Not the Empire. Darth Vader wins, because he's in charge. Put Darth in charge. Put Frieda in charge. <laughs> yes, he gets to show up the Pope. It totally works. You know it works. Okay. Friedrich is in charge, and they win. And yes, he gets to show up the Pope. It's a huge, huge ego blow to the Pope, and political blow to the Pope, which means also a theological blow to the Pope, because now the emperor, who just got himself excommunicated, is more obviously the apple of God's eye than the Pope. Kind of a huge thing. It also creates a, a, a sociological precedent that you can have a diplomatic crusade. You can actually go tell somebody that they have good diplomatic reason to do it this way and have things change without killing everybody. Maybe you don't always have to go around killing everybody. Maybe he was on to something. He didn't accomplish anything, but they fed deal. He set a precedent. That's a good point. I never thought about that. I have no idea if Friedrich even thought about that at all. That's a good point. That'd be interesting to look up. But, but at the very least, the idea, everything that we have now where we say, it's a diplomatic crusade. We're going to send people over. We're going to try to say, hey, we need to make sure that this is right. Let's, let's talk this through and let's change some things. Yeah, you can technically point back to this, the Sixth Crusade. This is the last, hey, that actually was relatively good crusade. There's, it's like one. You get one. <laughs> one crusade. Now, the next year, you'll notice we're back to bad things. Because over here, it says it wasn't all completely bad, right? Yeah, because you get the six percent. That's great. There's still a lot of bad things. Now we're back to some bad things. Because you have the Council of Toulouse. Where's Toulouse? In France. In France, right? What's going on in France? Yeah, yeah you're halfway through this, this Albigensian crusade. So... The Council of Toulouse is probably going to be a lot about heresy, I would think, right? When, when you have the Pope actually traveling to a war zone, the reason he's doing that is probably going to be significant. So, it's like, we got all these different orders, and I'm a little bit like innocent in that I don't like all these different orders. I don't like having so many monastic orders and sects, and everybody interpreting the Bible on their own. I don't like it. The Pope gets to interpret the Bible, not people. Once you, once you start cracking up the Bible, once you start cracking up the Bible, once you start cracking up the Bible, what to prevent you from coming up with your own interpretation, and your own interpretation, and your own interpretation? I can't let that happen. This is going to be bad. And so, nobody's interpreting it the same way the Pope's interpreting it. Oh, and that's a very good point. I thank you very much, because it's not just nobody's interpreting it the same way. It's nobody's interpreting it my way. That's the crucial thing. And I'm not even trying to, I'm not even saying that because I'm some sort of rabid anti-Catholic. It's like, no, the argument is, you have to support Rome. You're not doing it the way Rome is doing it. Therefore, it's bad, because Rome is obviously the seat of the, of the church, and you're not doing what Rome is doing. Therefore, by definition, you're a heretic. A heretic is literally, by definition, somebody who's going off their own direction. You are going off your own direction, by yourself, away from Rome. You could sit there, as Waldo said, and said, wait, 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 I think Rome went away from the Bible. As I actually read the Bible, you're not doing what the Bible is saying. You're adding a lot of weird stuff there that's not even in the Bible. I think you guys want and went away. Technically, if there's a heretic here, and I'm and Wallow never threw that, that word around like that, but he's like, if there's a heretic there, I think you guys are the heretics. Which is, of course, what got him excommunicated. 
So yes, he's like, no, you guys, I need to, to nail down all this heresy and make it stop. So, he set up an, an inquisition in each parish that would have the authority to, to seek out and punish anybody possibly guilty of heresy. If there's any question that you're guilty of heresy, these guys are going to do it. We're going to give them, we're going to have a, like a, a priest and a couple of lay people knock yourself out. They're going to have the right to search, siege, punish heretics, search your house, look for anything that, that, that points to your heresy, and if you have any kind of heretic, or even you're a suspected heretic, your home can be destroyed. Uh, anyone coming to their aid in any way is going to be immediately excommunicated. We're going to make this work. We're going to stop this now. And you were, you were making faces what? Yeah, amazing. Because remember last week when we talked about the, 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 the Jews with that, with that symbol on their clothing, if they did anything to speak out against Christianity or against Christ or against the church or anybody who was a Christian, if you said, um, uh, I, I think Ben is, is, a, is a little cheap, you know, and, and he's, not the, he's not the best you know, shopkeeper in town, they'd be like, well, but you're a Jew and he's a Christian, so you're speaking against a Christian. You're speaking against Christianity. You're guilty of speaking against Christianity. Therefore, we get to seize all of your property. Because that was what they what they did is if you're guilty of things as a Jew, we can seize all your property. An amazing amount of Jewish property got seized for nothing because you, there's no trial, there's nothing. It's, if you could point, if you could just show that he said something against Christianity, i.e., a Christian, i.e., Ben, you can take the stuff, or Ben could take his stuff. So yeah, there was a lot of that going on, unfortunately. It was kind of rampant, um, but it still doesn't solve the root problem. What's the root problem? People reading their Bibles. People reading their Bibles. How do we stop them? What do we do? The Roman Catholic Church banned the Bible. Oh, this is this is. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix this. It's dangerous for non-priests to have access to the Bible. So, Council of Toulouse put it on the forbidden books list. You are not allowed to read this. We are going to threaten excommunication and or death to anybody who actually attempts to own a copy of the Bible. The Inquisition is tasked, ransack every home, search the, search the walls, search the attic, rifle through everything to find any contraband Bibles and punish anybody who might attempt to read it or to own it. Stop this at its source. When we think of this, we tend to think of like communist Russia yes, or China seeking this out. You go, the church. And at this stage of the game, rather than sit there and say, wacky Catholics, because it's easy for us to take pot shots. We need to probably look back and say, we, because it's say the capital C church. Do I think that we that we stem directly off of that line? No, but are they cousins? Are they part of that same line? Yes. We as a church are capable of doing this. Of, of saying, you cannot come to your own conclusions. This is wrong. This is dangerous. We will we will kill you. We will rip your house apart to make sure you don't get access to the Bible. Now, they did allow Psalters, which is, you know, collections of psalms. If you want to sing, essentially a hymnal. If you want a hymnal in your household, you can do that, but only if it stays in its original Latin. If you translate the psalms into German or into English or into French or something, you're in trouble. God wrote this in Latin. Yes? God wrote the Bible in Latin. We're still 400 years before the King James Version. We're still 
dumped it to zoot to use until the next version comes along. Still, uh, is the reign of the Anyway, still a long time before this is popularly translated into uh, other people's uh, languages. They're like, no, even the Psalms. If you try to translate it out of God's original Latin, okay, what's it written in? What's the Bible? What's the Old Testament written in? New Testament? There you go. Monks can be because they're under the auspices of an abbey and an abbot who is essentially a priest. But um, but your lay people? No, not allowed. Now, Pope Innocent III had summarized the rationale for this back in 1199. So I'm going to read this large chunk just so that you get a sense of this. He said, The mysteries of the sacraments of faith should not be explained everywhere to everyone, since they cannot be understood everywhere by everyone, but only by those who can conceive of them by their faithful intellect. Such is the profundity of divine scripture that not only simple and illiterate men, but even prudent and learned men, do not fully suffice to investigate its wisdom. From this it is rightly once established in divine law that the beast which touches the mountain should be stoned. That is, that no simple and unlearned man presumes to concern himself with the sublimity of sacred scripture or preach it to others. So if you remember the Old Testament, the holy mountain, even, even a beast wasn't allowed to touch it. He's like, right. So we can take that and say that you, being brute beasts, do not get to touch the Bible. Isn't that exactly, it's a perfect application of that, isn't it? It's the same thing, I'm sure it is. But he's like, even intelligent people struggle with this. What about you boneheads? No, no, no. No, you don't get to touch it. <laughs> of course the people that would hear this would go, what beast, what mountain, what are you talking about? <laughs> Never you mind. I'm not going to explain why. How does this mindset still sometimes affect the modern church? What do we do that, that echoes this? And, and, and I think I can think of several different ways from several different things. We'll toss one out. As we said last time, it wasn't until Pope John Paul in the 80s that he actually had a pope that encouraged Catholics actually read the Bibles, right? So, I mean, for the next 700 years, the Catholic Church, at various degrees, actively said, don't be reading your Bibles. So, um, that's that's the easiest, most direct one, is that the Catholic Church said, no, until about 30 years ago. And even then, not every pope since John Paul has encouraged that much. But what else, other than just picking on the Catholics? Um, I was listening to a radio program, and they were talking about the Gnostics, and Would you, do me, would you pray for me? Would you, would you throw a prayer up? 
there are sometimes when there are people who call me and go, okay, I need some prayer support. You know, would you would you be praying with me on this? That's fine. But when people go, well, you're a pastor, would you pray? Like, I've got a more direct line to God somehow. Um, it doesn't work like that. But people put pastors up on this freaky pedestal. Like, if if Cliff said something from, from Matthew, you'd go, oh, that's a good point, that's a good point. If I say something from Matthew, they go, well, pastor said, you know. Or, or you know, which is goofy. Have I study Greek and anything? Fine. If that's the rationale, whatever. But to sit there and go, oh, you're, you're the pastor. You've got to know stuff. There's a reason beyond tradition why and it's not just Catholics, but I'll just say there's a reason why the Catholic Church has liked holding on to archaic dress, has liked holding on to Latin for much the same reason as when you watch a commercial where a scientist is telling you that you ought to do something, they're wearing the white coat that scientists always wear all the time, right? Of course they do. I'm at home, but I'm still wearing my white coat. And I say it has buckets, it's got vitamin and vegemin in it. You know, ooh, I don't understand what that means. It must be good. Much the same way as priests or doctors or scientists, we tend to go, you guys dress different. You use words I don't understand. Therefore, I can trust you without consideration. You were going to say something, right? Of course, but there's... I have to trust my mechanic when he says, okay, because he's my mechanic is a good guy. And if he says, oh, you got a broken A joint, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> we probably need to fix that, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> it, it just points to discouraging that personal relationship you should have with the Lord. Your accountability in church makes a cheerful decision. This takes that away. It totally does. Consciously. And, and, before we get too insidious, because it's very tempting for us to sit there and go, why those slime? What were you, you going to say, Emily? amazing number of people are like, yeah, we have a Bible study. What are you studying? Oh, John MacArthur. He's got this new book out. Great. How's that a Bible study? So I will even take that another step. I, I remember relatively early on in my pastor, I went to a Promise Keepers conference with a bunch of pastors. And one of the guys in the van said, I just don't know what to preach on next. I'm, I'm stymied. I just, I feel, I, I, I don't know. And everybody, oh, I know that feeling. Golly, I don't want to look forward to that. Like, well, what, what was the last thing you preached on? And the reason I he said, uh, there's this book by John MacArthur, such and such and such. I'm like, I'm, I apologize. I didn't say that right. What biblical book was the last one you, you preached on? He's like, oh, I don't preach on the Bible. The Bible? I mean, but I mean, I, I find a really good book and follow that. And, and, and the, the guy next to me, I was just like, gosh, it's harsh. And he's just like, well, I, I was I was reading this this book by such and such and journey. I was using that to structure my sermon. I realized there were uh, four of us in the van, and I was the only one that was actually preaching from the Bible. Uh, now, these guys included Bible verses, and they would they would lay it out, and then they would go find Bible verses to make the points that they've already laid out. And I'm like, wait, none of you actually start with the Bible, and I and I'm not trying to be like, oh. I'm so awesome. It freaked me out. Because it just... Oh, I did. I called her for that. I was like, how does this work? Because I, mean, I, I don't... Did they know what expository preaching was? At least? 
Not really. When I start explaining, I preach from the Bible. You're like, okay, how do you, how would you even do that? You know, like I'm the weirdo in the band, and I was like, oh, you. Did they put a seminary? Yes, but different seminaries and things. And uh, well, then I, I don't know that one of them did, but uh, but he went to a Bible college. He's like. Absolutely. Very good people, bright people, smarter than me people. You know, sure, but it's not the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, when I described how to do expository preaching to the guys, because I did a little expository preaching class, I'm like, I just, I'm six months out of seminary for crying out loud. I did a little expository preaching class in the, in the van, and all three of them were like, huh! Like, that is total brand new. They'd never heard of doing it that way. I'm just like, you're kidding me. That's freaky. You were going to say something, though. Oh, yeah. You know that there's a lot of stuff that hit on the spotlight, but I don't know if anybody is really saying, you know, the word says we're not going to know when it's going to happen. Yeah, he had some interesting exegesis about that, but yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what his background was, but I'm just saying also the whole thing of not knowing your word and his atmosphere that that created has led into modern church. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, uh, in our campus ministry, uh, one guy um, was Catholic, never read his Bible, one day picked up his Bible started reading it, and left the Catholic Church over it, because he's like, now I get what it was that I was supposed to be writing. My own sister-in-law was angry for a long time, that she went to Catholic and she did everything she thought she was supposed to do, and didn't hear that she's I remember going to a Polish deli in Chicago, and I was talking to them for a while, and, and they were saying, well, you know, you're a priest, I'm a pastor. Yeah, yeah, you're a priest. And, um, <laughs> but our daughter's having problems. How do we deal with this? And I, 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 okay, let's go back to Scripture and how we can work through some of these different things. They're like, wait, that's in there? I was like, yeah. Yeah. And we said something else, and they're like, wait, that's in there? Like, yeah, just a second. I trotted back out to my car, came back in with the Bible, and we did a little Bible study. And by the end of it, they were getting torqued. Because they're like, for Years we have gone to our priests saying, how do we help with our daughter? How do we do some of this stuff? Nobody has ever shown us anything that you have shown us in this, in this Bible. And so the very next day, I, I, I was up for the for a conference. The very next day, I ditched the conference in the afternoon. And I went to a, a, a good used bookstore that I knew of and found them a, a, a Polish Bible, because they, they were broken English. I found them a Polish Bible and took it back to them. And they were weeping, but they are just like, Nobody has ever talked to us about this. We spent our entire lives in the Catholic Church. We beg, could you please help us, give us some wisdom? Nobody's ever told us about any of this. Yes? I'm going to go to a little missionary yeah. A number of years ago, there's a pastor that he had to let go because he was going online and just taking a sermon from that and being almost one very good. So it's. It, it, and I, I, I let myself to this, and I apologize. As I said, let's not just diss the Catholics. And I, I gave an, an example from Catholicism. But all of us, all the churches, have struggles with people who say, but I'm going to defer this to the pastors. I'm going to defer this to this. You know, I'm going to defer wisdom to somebody else. I'm not going to read my Bible because it's not like I could understand it. Um, or even when somebody looks at the Bible and says, did you notice it says this? It's amazing how many times we'll go, no, 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 no. You're, you're messing yourself up with that. But it, it, 
can we interact over this? It says this. It's like this nature, this notion that you shouldn't be reading your Bible. It's not for you. I even had a, a teacher in uh, um, my undergrad for my New Testament class that was, ironically, not a Christian, but he was the New Testament prof. Uh, it was a state school. And, uh, and he even said at one point when somebody was like, but doesn't the Bible actually say this? He said, do you read Greek? And she's like, well, no. He said, then it wasn't written for you. Stop trying to interpret it. It was written to Greeks. Let me explain to you what it meant to them. And uh, it, he and I had a chat about that after the class. But um, I didn't read Greek yet. I didn't read Greek yet. So there wasn't anything I could say about that kind of stuff. But at least I chatted about the, the nature of what he was doing from you can get stuff, but you can't pretend that your interpretation trumps their interpretation. And since he's the prof, and his interpretation of what their interpretation is is the supreme, there's all sorts of pedagogical problems with that. Yeah. And he had the privilege of saying that right in front of all the other people. Yeah. But it's also why we have so many different denominations. Oh. People using the same scripture. Excellent. Thanks for getting me back on track. What these guys are trying to do, you got to put it in this context. They're not trying to be. They're not trying to be obnoxious. They're not trying to be malicious. They're trying to make sure that everybody's got the truth. They're trying to make sure you're not spinning off in wacky directions. And they're seeing people spinning off in wacky directions. In some ways, in some ways, having multiple denominations now is a relatively healthy thing because you have this healthy pull from different directions, and you're trying to. When it works. It works because people have the, 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 the core doctrine correct, and we're... If you can get an Arminian and a Calvinist in the same room together, working on a problem, and they will actually listen to each other, and actually interact with scripture well together, you come up with really good solutions, because you've got one really pulling about the sovereignty of God, and one really pulling about human responsibility, both of which are really good and really biblical. You go, yay! You put a bunch of Arminians together in a, in a hole somewhere, and eventually they'll start going, it's all about us. You put a bunch of, Armin of Calvinists up in a tower somewhere by themselves, and eventually they'll start going, it has nothing to do with us, it's all about God, and there's only that, and it doesn't matter what we do at all. You go, maybe you guys shouldn't exist in bubbles. Maybe it's good to actually, I'm not saying that these guys are wrong or these guys are wrong, but maybe it's good to actually remind yourself that there are other ways of viewing this that other interpretations can nuance yours in healthy ways. The problem is that 90% of the time we're either infighting over petty crap or we're heading off into dangerous theological territories. And that's why you get to a lot of these denominations. It's healthy when it cross-pollinates in healthy ways and you've got healthy churches trying genuinely to come from scripture. It's unhealthy when it's a bunch of politicking or a bunch of heresy flying around. These guys are trying to keep that from happening. So you want to give them at least a little bit of credit for what they're trying to do. This is why we founded the Papal Inquisition. The parish level thing didn't work because it basically devolved into, into mucky peasants just saying, she's a witch, she's a witch, burner, 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 and that's it. That's the extent of, of the trial that they would have. So Gregory says, we're going to have the Papal Inquisition. Instead of this burning people's houses, burning people because you don't like them, I want it to be methodical. We're going to have it led by Dominicans. These are the guys who are educated. They know what they're doing. And by bishops who are educated by the Dominicans. These are people who are actually intelligent. They're going to go at this fairly. We can convert the heretics back to Christianity 
with a proper combination of theological disputation and a little bit of strong arming. But this is a good thing. Understand the Papal Inquisition was formed to keep people in check theologically in, in, to, be, to be Christians, but also because the parish inquisitions were horrible and they were being malicious to people. This is a way of protecting the, the accused. In fact, specifically said, no torture. No torture. You don't get to torture people. Don't do that. Just talk to them. Confiscate their property if they need to, but you don't get to hurt the people. Papal Inquisition is a good thing. In context, look at the historical context of it. Why was it started? It was started because they were trying to, to help bring people to Christ and trying to protect the accused. Now, granted, 1252, new Pope Innocent IV said, oh, torture is a good thing. We can include torture. So it didn't go real long, 20 years before you get tortured. But the idea was that you would try to protect people. However, even just, just because the, that Inquisition immediately started having excesses, and because the, the, the Pope said, I think the Emperor's a heretic. Now that we're talking about heresies, I think Friedrich is a heretic. Bavarian Bishop Everhard decided that the Pope was the Antichrist. He said, yep. This man of perdition whom they call Antichrist, who in extravagant boasting said, I am God. I cannot err. I cannot make mistakes. I sit in the magic chair. I make no mistakes, ever. So Everhart was immediately excommunicated, which of course put the German bishops at odds with Rome, right? So now you've got more divisions within the church. While all this is going on, the Mongols decided to invade Europe. Because Genghis Khan's son, Ogadai, declares that they should invade Europe. And we're going to see some interesting changes come next week. Let's close in prayer on that. Let's try to put this in the context of what we can learn from this, rather than just picking on other people or learning historical dates. Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you that you want to be in relationship with us. I thank you that you open up your holy word to us. You fill us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you desire for us to know you. And even though we can only know you at various levels here, we know that there will be a time when we can know you perfectly. We can be in your presence. And so I pray, Lord, help us to genuinely seek you out every day, to genuinely open up your word every day, to genuinely try to understand you. And I pray, Lord, that you give us the wisdom and grace to be able to hold one another accountable while at the same time learning from one another. I pray, Lord, help us never, never to undermine the genuine study of people who are desperately trying to understand you sincerely. Be glorified by the life we give you. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Wacky fun. <laughs>